Welcome to this week's episode of Time Personified. I'm really excited because I'm actually sitting here with the author of this incredible book called Revolutionary Witchcraft, and her name is Sarah Lyons. And I really wanted to have Sarah on the show because whether um, you, whoever's listening, whether you are somebody who's dabbled in witchcraft or whether you're just interested in like other things like astrology, tarot, or whatever, um, this book really opens some doors into like how you can use magic and occult practices as a form of like practical activism in this really crazy world that we live in. Um, so I'm like so excited to have her on the show and have this conversation about magic and activism and all of that stuff. So yeah, Sarah, welcome to the show. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into witchcraft, whatever you want to share. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't really, really remember a time I wasn't into witchcraft or magic or the occult or things like that. Um, when I was a kid, I, you know, I used to read books on mythology and folklore and all sorts of things like that, you know, obsessively. I, I grew up in a fairly rural area. So things like the wheel of the year and magic and the moon, like those things kind of made a certain level of intuitive sense to me. But it wasn't, I, I kind of, I always kind of wished this stuff was real, but thought it wasn't, right? I was like, oh, it, it was, it's cool that people used to believe in, you know, these gods. And it, it, it's cool that people used to believe in magic, but like, I, I wish people still did. And I remember we, I was driving home one day with my, my mom and uh, there was this NPR piece on Wicca that came on and I was like my mind was blown I was like oh my god there are people who call themselves witches and like do this stuff and people are actually doing this out there and I remember I ran up to the computer as soon as we got into the driveway and I the computer in our house and I just started googling everything I could about Wicca and witchcraft and I don't consider myself a Wiccan anymore but that was my my sort of gateway drug into the whole world I guess and yeah, I never, I never really stopped. And that was about 14, I would say. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that Wicca was kind of like their gateway into it. And I actually learned from your book that Wicca is kind of a newer um, sort of, I guess, I don't know if you call it like a religion or whatever. Um, but yeah, um, so this kind of like gets us into the first question, because um, I wanted to just ask you, what is witchcraft? Because I feel like there's a lot of different ideas of what it is, um, and like how is it distinguished from like the other occult arts? Sure. Yeah. So I think witchcraft is actually one of the most difficult facets of the occult to sort of define, because it's not like you can point to a historical tradition in the same way that you can with other uh, forms of magic. And it's not like you can go back and find like who the witches are in a very easy way like you can with other forms of magic. Um, you know, it's not, uh, the witch is not a title historically that people proudly call themselves. It was something you got called by others and usually to your detriment. So you know, you can go back in history and you can find, you know, the cunning folk and you can find, uh, you know, the healers and you can find the outcasts and you can find all these people that and and cobble together, you know, sort of 
who we think the witch is, but, but she's ultimately a figure that doesn't really make herself known very well. So to me, my definition of witchcraft is um, that it is a form of occultism that arises from things like the grimoire tradition and arises from things like, uh, you know, spell books and practical magic, but it's um, tied very intimately to the land and landscape of the person practicing it. Mm, okay. And, 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 people, and is that is okay. part of a very Sorry. feminine form of magic, which I think is, is important to, uh, to emphasize. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that, I'm kind of wondering, so now I have two questions. Um, first of all, um, can men be witches? Um, and also, like, the people who we consider witches, is that, is witch like a word that they would have ever used to describe themselves? Or like, where did the word witch actually come from? Sure. So, I mean, witch is a gender neutral ter term. So mm -hmm. anybody from, of any gender or non-gender can call themselves a witch. It's, it's not a, a gendered term, like a lot of people think it is. And historically, people of all sorts of genders have called themselves or been, or, or rather have been called witches. Um, you know, uh, men and you know and lots of people were killed in the witch trials as well so that's an, an important thing to remember um but um as far as let me see your the um people so historically people haven't really called themselves witches in the way that people today call themselves witches um which sort of began like the the word which comes from the old English word Wicca, which means wise, is the is kind of the the root of it. But the you know, witches historically in Europe were were not seen as a, a positive thing. You know, witches were not even always physical or uh, you know, human people. Sometimes witches were, you know, uh, you know, beings of the forest that, in, you know, infected your crops, killed your child, and sometimes people were, you know, afflicted with witchcraft, and okay. there was a witch to blame and on that was just like, what happened to them, right? So, um, uh, yeah, so so people people weren't calling themselves witch, and and I and I the reason I I so in the in the book I write that witch is a political term because mm -hmm. uh. Which historically was, you know, similar to words like felon or terrorist or illegal or things like that, where these are not words that just arose out of nowhere, right? These are words that the state gave us. These are words that have a legal and political implication to them. And which was the same way. If you got called a witch by somebody else, that that was a huge uh, knock against your. That was that was a life-threatening thing to be called, right? It was a knock against your reputation at the very least. So the uh, so people would not go around calling themselves witches uh, like people do now. The, the word witch kind of got reclaimed in, you know, sort of the early 20th century and or rather mid 20th century. Um, first by people, you know, reigniting this practice under things like Wicca with like Gerald Gardner and um, uh you know, Alexandrian craft, like Alexander's or Doreen Valiente and people like that out of the UK. And then eventually like people like Starhawk in the United States sort of leaned into the witch being not just a, uh, 
historical figure or a magical figure, but also in, you know, kind of embodied this feminist sort of figure that there's that, you know, uh, the witch was persecuted for something about her womanhood, something about, um, you know, her gender. Right. And that this was, you know, this sort of all gets tied together. Right. So it's only been very recently that people have been adopting and using the word witch in a positive sort of, you know, reclaiming sort of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much complicated history in there. And um, you kind of get into it in the beginning of your book. You talk about how the witch trials were not something that was totally like implemented by the church. It was, it was kind of an economic thing as, as well. So um, do you want to go a little bit into that? Like how the witch trials are linked to capitalism and why this is important for us to know about today? Sure. So, I mean, I think that um, the witch trials are one of those periods in history that it's, you know, you can never really come up with the sil silver bullet of uh, why, you know, you know, what exactly happened there, right? You know, there's, there's periods of time in history that I think we'll always be arguing over all of the factors that went into it, right? And so I think that the witch trials are one of those periods of time that, like, ultimately, we're never going to know exactly why Europe just decided to shit the bed for, like, a couple hundred <laughs> years there, right? But um, there, and, you know, and the Americas, too. But I think um, something I've been saying on my on my tour and something that I think, you know, there's a, there's a quote that, like, um, from Howard's in that resonates with me, and I, and I use this a lot, is that, you know, history is a weapon, and how we tell history and how we recognize our own history is not just, um, it's not just a story, it's not just a series, like, history is not just a series of facts, it's a narrative that is either spun by the oppressed or by the oppressor, and how we tell our history uh, can link to our future. So, I think that, um, there's a lot of different things that we can say about the witch trials. I think it is most advantageous and most informative for us to view the witch trials as a result of the emergence of capitalism because it links us and unites our fight with struggles that are currently going on now. And it, I think it situates witchcraft as um, it, it situates witchcraft in an oppositional way to capitalism and to these oppressive forces themselves, imperialism, colonialism, things like that. Um, basically, at the, the dawn of the early modern period in Europe, there was a lot of stuff going on. There were things like the Enlightenment was beginning, um, you know, the scientific revolution was happening. Um, there was the shift out of the Middle Ages into, you know, modern modernism. There was, um, uh, you know, the the Europe was beginning to colonize, you know, Africa and the Americas in, you know, huge and awful ways. Uh, and there was this thing in Europe going on called the enclosure movement, which started in uh, England and it moved to other parts of Europe very quickly. And basically it was the first time in European history and like potentially world history where the land itself became a thing that could be owned. Um, so before that, you, you know, parts of land were owned by, you know, a king or a prince or princess or something like that. And you would have your, your kingdom. And if you lived within the kingdom, you, uh, if you were a peasant or somebody, you know, outside of the royal family, you maybe paid a tax to them in exchange for their protection of their knights. You maybe like 
there was some you you gave a tithe of like your crops or labor or services in like in exchange for being able to exist within that piece of land but it wasn't like uh you had to pay to exist there all the time right you know seasons were a thing people couldn't always grow things all the time things uh couldn't always be built all the time. There was a magical world view where certain days of the week, certain times of the day, certain times of the year, were not good for doing certain things. And, and you know, uh, you know, the production for production's sake was not a thing, right? So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, and, and not to say that this time of, I don't want to go back and say like, let's all go back to the Middle Ages because like it was still terrible. But um, it's just, you know, land was not owned, which meant that you didn't have to, pay to exist everywhere and anybody listening to this right now I really want you to take some time to really think about when was the last time you were able to exist somewhere without having to pay to be there like you're if you're renting your apartment if you are making payments on your house if you are like even if you go to a park or something like that like you probably had to pay to get in or pay gas money to get there, pay to take the bus or the subway there, right? Like there's almost no place left on the earth where you can just exist without having to pay to be there, right? Mm -hmm. So once the land became something that could be owned, um, immediately everybody on that land either becomes somebody with the means of producing wealth, like owning a thing that can make wealth to live there, which is a capitalist, or you have to become a worker, which is somebody who sells their labor to a capitalist in order to exist in that place, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that was very unpopular when that first happened. And there was a ton of riots and revolts and peasant uprisings and stuff like that. And as, you know, this is happening, you know, that is happening along with the enlightenment, with the mechanization of the world, the turning of the world into a series of, you know, gears and cogs that all fit together very nicely. Um, you know the dismissal, the, the dismissing of magic as a as a worldview and the and epistemology. Um, you know colonialism and, and expansion of imperial power. This all kind of comes together to sort of make the witch trials happen. Um, and I think it's important to remember that, and I think it's important to situate that because there is it it, it mean what it means is that this type of violence, like whenever capitalism expands outward, there needs to be the sort of violence of, you know, the oppression of the female body, the oppression of indigenous people, the oppression of um, magical worldviews. Like these all, these things go together whenever capitalism expands. And it's not a bug in the system. It is a feature of the system. And I think that that is an important way to frame our history because it situates us very nicely and very properly in your current world and like the, the problems we're facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's so important to like, cause you, you know, you had to sort of pause and like try to imagine the last time that we ha- didn't have to pay to exist somewhere. We're so used to that because we were born into a world that has been completely like capitalism is just all around us. Um, and I think for me, like, um, my introduction to the occult was really kind of getting into astrology and the whole idea of like the, the lunar cycles and like, you don't have to be working all the time and you actually need like 
rest and you can still have value if you're not producing. That is, that was such a like mind shattering <laughs> realization for me. Um, which is why I think that, um, witchcraft, astrology, heal, like, you know, um, holistic healers, like all that kind of stuff is such an important, like their return to the quote mainstream, like they're kind of making their way back is so important. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about that, like witchcraft today and how the return of witchcraft is sort of like helping us um, in this opposition with the capitalist mindset that's rapidly destroying the planet? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, I mean, there's been several sort of witchcraft uh, upticks, right? There's been, there's, you know, in the 60s, there was a little bit of a boom in the, in the 90s, there was, and now we're, we're having another one right now. So it's not the first time that this has happened, but it has, it, you know, it, it's this particular moment seems to be sticking around for a little bit. And um, I think that the way that witchcraft has been marketed, it's, it's not even, I don't want to let capitalism off the hook and say it's not capitalism's fault, <laughs> but I think that for a while we kind of uh, let that, seep into we we kind of got we kind of poisoned ourselves a little bit as witches and as an occult community by uh relying so heavily on like accoutrements and kind of uh uh you know writing books and uh talking about witchcraft as this thing where you have to buy all this stuff to do it and that's that's so nice for capitalism right because then it's like ooh you need an oil and a candle and a crystal and a thing for this and like a book and all, you know, you need all this stuff mm -hmm. to do this. Right. And I'm not saying that like you don't need to buy certain herbs. I'm not saying that like certain spells and certain magics like require objects of certain sorts to do them. Right. So I'm not saying like just sit around and meditate all day because like I like stuff. I think that stuff is important. But I think that, you know, when we frame witchcraft and when we frame magic as a thing that you, you need all this stuff to do, we kind of did a disservice, right? We kind of did it a, a disservice. And I think, um, you know, capitalism is very, you know, willing to come in and fill that void. I think also, um, you know, like capitalism plays that trick on you, right? Where it, uh, it, sell, it, it, it did the same thing to things like punk, or, uh, you know, 60s radicalism, where it sells the, it defangs the um, tools of your liberation and then sells them back to you, right? So where something like punk was, the, you know, the aesthetics of punk, you know, when you think of tartan and you think of, um, you know, pins and stuff like that, that was all supposed to be sort of a, a commentary on class. Like the tartan was supposed to be a commentary on like the class structure in England and the pins were supposed to be, you know, safety pins were literally how people were holding their clothes together because they couldn't afford to buy new clothes. They were holding their, their stuff together with safety pins, right? And then now all of a sudden these, these sort of symbols of class and of repression become aesthetics, right? Like it reduced to aesthetics and then sold back to you. And I think it's very important to recognize that capitalism is very good at doing that again and again and again. So, um, you know, it can be, uh, heartening to see witchcraft being portrayed in positive ways in our culture. But I think we have to be very critical and very cautious with how it's being done because 
it does feel a little bit the same way that, you know, it's just marketing this actually very radical and very liberating tool right back to us, but in a way that has all of the danger and all of the challenge to things like patriarchy and capitalism and these things totally taken out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is such an important point. And like, um, pretty much anyone I know who's into spiritual stuff, they're going to like be going into crystal shops and like buying all kinds of things. I probably buy like a tarot deck every month, you know, um, there's a lot of consumerism mm -hmm. opportunities when just like anything that you're interested in, like, like you said, capitalism kind of commodifies anything. Um, so what are some things that we can do? Those of us who are into witchcraft, into spirituality, to sort of prevent capitalism from like, defanging us and from taking our power away sure so i mean i think that um i think that one is when you do have to buy something or when you do want to buy something to to try to support like people within the community and to try to support mm -hmm. people like buying things from a local occult shop or from uh, you know, a neighbor or uh, somebody, somebody in your, in, within a community that you inhabit in order to, like, support, you know, other witches and other people doing this stuff. I think that that is important if you are going to buy stuff. I think otherwise, um, one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book to include, uh, you know, no spells that, you know, even the, the, no spell in my book do you have to go out and buy something for everything in everything in the book you can probably find the materials for in your apartment or very cheaply you know somewhere and the reason for that is because uh i think that it's you know magic is your right like magic is something that belongs to all of us and the idea that you have to go buy something in order to make magic happen is i think fundamentally just like wrong and uh you know yeah, it's 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 a it's a ploy, right? So I think the the the, the so there's no I, I so I think capitalism gets its its power from uh, disconnection and from making you feel isolated and alone and um, you know lacking community, lacking love, lacking family, and witchcraft and magic gets its power from connection, right? you know, you have to form connections with plants, with animals, with your community, with yourself, with the land in order to really work with it and use it. And so I think it's actually the, the most anti-capitalist thing you can do in your witchcraft is like talking to your plants, like going for a walk in your neighborhood and really seeing what plants and animals and things are happening there. And then beginning a dialogue with that place and finding, you know, intuitive and non-intuitive ways to kind of work with those entities and those other members of your community, human and non-human and using that, you know, uh, you know, there's, so I live in New York city, there's tons of mugwort that grows around here in the, the spring to the fall. And that's one of my favorite herbs to use because it's so resilient and, and it's everywhere. And you'll walk into a cold store sometimes and they'll, they'll be selling mugwort there. And I'm like, this is for free. Like you can literally go outside and pick this stuff. Right. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's, to me, the biggest thing is finding community and finding, you know, uh, ways to commune with 
the human and non-human members of your community and using them in magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's so necessary just in the world that we live in today with the fact that um, we're rapidly destroying the environment as a human race. And I think the main reason that we are like, that we can't stop, <laughs> like, you know, this cycle of like destroying nature is because capitalism and a, a lot of other things have kind of disconnected us from the earth. Like we kind of forget that we are a part of nature and the foods that we buy, yeah, totally. we buy are like, they're, they're given for free from the earth, <laughs> you know, and we're, mm -hmm. we're a part of that. Um, that's also, yeah, it's really important. No, the thing, I mean, what I, I mean, I, I really do believe that we can either have a livable planet or we can have capitalism, but we can't have both. Like, I think capitalism mm. will inevitably destroy the planet unless we stop it. And, um, and I, so like, I, I, you know, people think that I'm being flippant or I'm being uh, dramatic when I say this, but I do really think that capitalism is evil. Like, I do think it is a fundamentally evil system. And I don't think that humans are fundamentally evil. So mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, uh, humans are capable of so much wrong. I'm not saying that capitalism is the only thing that has made people, uh, you know, evil or, or do bad things. But I don't think that the natural state of people is one of harming each other and one of, uh, you know, hierarchy and tearing ourselves down. I think people are actually very capable of living in communion with each other and with the land and with, you know, plants and animals and all of that. And I think that, you know, when you have a system like capitalism that necessitates hierarchy, it necessitates a uh, profit motive above all else, you're, you're inevitably going to get exploitation. Like that's, that's what happens when you do that. Something has to be exploited uh, at some stage. And if something has to be exploited in order for the system to work, well, then that's not a very good system. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a tangent, but I, I just want to throw that out there. No, I don't think it is a tangent. And it kind of goes um, back to, I'm asking you these questions like completely out of order. So it brings me back to this other question I had written down. No, it's okay. Um, it's okay. <laughs> in the, like in the face of oppression and exploitation, we're seeing people and animals and resources being exploited and oppressed. Um, like, what is the role of the spiritual community and why is it so important for us to sort of stand in solidarity with that um, and retain our power from the capitalism? Sure. So, I mean, yeah. So I think that, um, I think that for a long time or not a long time, I shouldn't say, that. I think that for a while, what people have um, in the magical community and um, there's, a, there's, this, there's been this idea of um sort of spell work as direct action that like what we're supposed to do is do like kind of prayer circles uh for australia and we're supposed to do like you know hexes on this figure or that figure and i'm not saying that like i'm not saying don't do that right i'm not saying um that there's no value in that or that there's no um there's no um yeah i'm not saying that there's no value in those things but i do think that those things are ultimately cathartic and i don't think I think catharsis is anti-revolutionary at a certain level. So I think, um, you know, catharsis makes you feel good, but it doesn't actually necessarily lead to anything. So I think that more so than just doing, um, you know, uh, a blessing on a, you know, certain public figure or a place or something like that, or, you know, a curse in the opposite direction. I think um, we as 
you know, people in the magical community, you know, uh, those of us who are, you know, doing divination, those of us who are reading the stars, like if you're an astrologer, like you are, like that's a valuable member of like uh, an activist community because you're going to be able to tell people when people should do a direct action. You're going to be able to tell people when the correct days are for something like that or when something might not be a great day for that, like when people will have more success or not success, right? Um, you, you know, that's a valuable, you know, people should take that kind of information and knowledge seriously. So I think it's about like contribute, like joining movements and kind of making those movements take us seriously, you know, a little bit and, and really, um, and, and, and being that to our communities and to people who are fighting this fight, because people are longing for, uh, spiritual help in this fight. People are longing for healers and designers and, spell you know spell workers and witches and magicians and you know we we are necessary in this we we are filling a necessary role as we as we've always filled in our communities until very recently historically so i think that that's a uh, you know if you're out there doing magic lend those skills to the fight in like a very practical way you know that's that's a good thing um yeah yeah, it's yeah, and I like that's one of the things that your book really opened up to me was that like because I have been I I've been an activist in the past like I've done a lot of stuff for like animal rights and I protested so much when Trump got elected and everything, um, mm-hmm. and I've always felt really connected to that. And your book really kind of taught me how I can like take my current skill set and my current like what I do for a living and sort of like connect that into making the world a better place and like really practical activism. Um, so what are some examples and like this can, you, you have a lot of examples in your book. So maybe something from your, maybe something that's not from your book. What are some examples of like ritual and magic that's like been able to fuel activism and social justice? Sure. So, I mean, in, in the book I use, I think one of the most like prominent examples I use is um, ACT UP because they were known for very dramatic um, ritualistic actions, like public funerals and public cursing and, you know, literally uh, taking the ashes of their dead loved ones to the the lawns of the white house and dumping them out on the lawn of the white house, which is, you know, you want to talk about necromancy, like, there you go. Like, right. Like you want to talk about ancestor worship, like, there you go. It's, it's, you know, I don't know how much clearer you can get. So and just to clarify, really, in case someone's not familiar, ACT UP is the, they were activists during the AIDS epidemic, right? So. Yes, yes. So ACT UP was a, um, uh, I'm going to, oh my God, I'm totally going to blink on the name of the, the acronym, but, but ACT UP was a, was a group of activists. It started out of New York City, but I believe it has a global presence. They, they are still in existence, although they're not quite as big or prominent as they used to be, but um, but it started in New York City and it, it quickly spread to other places in the U.S. and I believe around the world. But um, they they were sort of known as the the more militant, um, hardcore, like direct action uh, focused um, wing of sort of the the gay liberation and like gay rights movement and uh, like queer rights movement in the 80s and 90s in response to the AIDS epidemic. So they were. Um, known for you know big disruptions of meetings and they were known for big public die-ins for protesting outside of uh, you know senators houses and um, you know big demonstrations in Washington and stuff like that and 
one of their one of their tactics was political funerals. So if a member of ACT UP were was to die of AIDS during the course of you know the their activism, a lot of times they would they would say that they wanted their funeral to be a political funeral. So um, you know having their their body take you know their their coffin taken through the streets and having people like say like this person died of AIDS doing something with their death to make it a symbolic death um which is literally like you know speaking from beyond the grave right like that is that is an act of magic right um right here in New York City what's there's a thing happening right now that I want to call attention to because I think it actually is very potent and very magical which is um uh there's been a a lot of problems with the subways over the past couple of years recently there's been fare hikes and they're in addition to the fare hikes they are adding a ton of new police to the subway i think something like five thousand new cops have been added and it's costing they say it's in the name of fare evasion but it's actually going to cost more to hire all of these new police officers and it is going to save money on fare evasion so that's not the reason they're doing it but there's a uh you know i'll just speak anecdotally but it's gone from, you know, in in the eight or nine years that I've lived here, it's gone from every now and then seeing a cop on the subway to every time I get on the subway seeing at least two police officers, right? So it's it's really ridiculous. There's been a lot of violence. And um, there's this one group here in New York City called Decolonize This Place that has been doing actions where they'll get, you know, you know, hundreds of people together to just jump the subway turnstiles, right? Just to jump over them. I think it's actually a very potent magical act because it is a barrier that has been artificially created, which is, you know, a magical act as an, you know, an artificial barrier that's being created that people ritualistically give money to, you know, thousands of times a day. And these people are coming together to just say, no, like this is, this is fake. Like this is a fake barrier and we're going to jump over it. And like, look how easy it is to just not, obey the rules that we we have that have been set up around us and you know we live in a city that has wall street in it and has all you know so much wealth in it so many billionaires live here and why can't public transit be free like why why do we have to obey the laws of this barrier right i think it's actually a very potent magical act because it's making the invisible visible and transgressing that which is uh yeah i think it's very potent yeah, and I think and it's, one. Oh, go ahead. Keep keep talking. Oh no no no, go for it. Um, I think one of the other things that that act is really doing is kind of calling to attention just how much of our reality is depends upon everybody sort of agreeing on things. Like money only exactly, is money yeah. because we all agree on it, and like um, the fact that we have to pay to exist certain places, like that only really can stand if everybody just sort of goes along with it. Um, so I think like that kind of opens people's eyes up to just how much of our world we're submitting to, but we don't really have to. It's all just kind of like, a, it's all in our collective imagination, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, completely. Yeah, that, that's super powerful. Um, and it kind of brings me to like, um, if anybody's listening to this podcast episode and they're starting to feel kind of um, inspired to see what they can do for um, a cause that they really care about or something that they see in their community that they 
want to change. Um, you have this chapter in your book about power mapping and, um, you know, if you're, if this conversation is like really sparking some stuff for you, I really suggest you get her book, um, uh, Revolutionary Witchcraft. I'll link it in the show notes um, to the best place where you can um, get it. I got it from my library. Um, but can you like sort Yay! of briefly describe, yeah, I got, got it from a, for free from my library. Um, but can you like briefly describe um, the, the process of power mapping um, and how you can sort of use that to, to create a movement that's, that has power? Yeah. So, I mean, power mapping is a technique that I learned, you know, here in New York City um, that is, it's, so it's been used, I believe, since the 60s is when it was, it was first codified. I, I want to say it was Saul Alinsky that codified it, but I, I don't actually know if that's, I don't know if he invented it or if it came from somewhere else before him. I don't want to give him too much credit for it. But so there's um, basically what it is, is the, um, uh, it's an, a kind of mental technique that activists use to figure out how to most effectively target and action. So there's, you know, if you have a problem that you're trying to face and that you're trying to get done, it is a, um, it's a series of steps you can take to sort of break down the problem into tiny pieces and to try to target your actions at, yeah, at specific targets, at people and uh, institutions that actually have the power to move the dial and give you what you want. Um, I think one of the most important things about this that gets kind of brushed aside and that a lot of people, even on the left and even in, in movements that I'm a part of, sort of skip over is the first step, which is to imagine your utopia. Like, what do you want at the end of all of this? Not just this one fight that you're fighting, not just, not just this one issue that you have, but like, what is your dream scenario? If, let's say, if all the problems went away, like, what world would we be living in? And I actually think that that's an important thing for people to sort of sit with and really dream about and write down and meditate on and think about because we don't spend enough time thinking of our perfect utopia at the end of all of this. And, and we, I think, really need to. I think we, get, we need to get kind of clear about just the big thing that we're fighting for, right? But basically, when you start with your utopia and then you go backwards, you're like, okay, well, I want a world like this. Here are some things that are you know, keeping that from happening. Okay, like patriarchy exists, that sucks. Well, how is that manifesting? Okay, well, it's manifesting right now in my life is manifesting in this way, like this law or this, or this institution or what have you. Okay, well, how do we change that? Who are the people who are propping that up? Okay, well, these are the people who are doing that. How can we target them? Okay, here's how we can do that, right? And so you start to work backwards and see the ways that you can start to move the dial. And I think it's a very, I tried to, what I try to do with this book is sort of blend a lot of these techniques together to kind of give people, yeah, these like foundational organizing techniques so that you can do something. I, I, I wanted people to walk away with real tech that they could use. So I'm happy that you got so much from that. Yeah. And, um, the, again, like the, the simplicity of the rituals that you can do on your own that you t talk about in the book, like the, the, the flight rituals and like the ancestor stuff, like how, how easy and accessible it is. And you don't really have to like buy anything or be anything. You could literally like never have known anything about witchcraft and like pick up this book and kind of like basically do a spell. Um, 
So if there's somebody out there who is maybe interested and in, like in dabbling in some witchcraft, interested in like the activist um, side of things, what is like a ritual that they can do to sort of get started to um, like get started in their practice and sort of dabble into it? Hmm. I actually feel like, so I, I, uh, one of my um, pieces of advice is I, I think, I think it's very um, tempting to want to do everything all at once when you get started and just like dive in and, and start doing everything. But I don't, I think that that can become very overwhelming and it can be very, uh, uh, yeah, it, it can almost be disappointing because you're like, okay, I, I did, you know, I meditated once this week and then I did this spell and then I did this and it's, and why isn't everything working? Right. So um, it can, it can get very frustrating and very, uh, sort of bewildering to try to do everything at once. So I actually think for people listening, uh, find something that you're interested in. Find, you know, if there's a, a deity you're interested in working with, if there's a, um, a technique that you're interested in, if there's, a, if there's an art, if there's, whether that's astrology or divination or something like that, like take some time out of your day, take like 10 minutes, literally, and so, like, meditate or journal or read on that, you know, to take a little bit of time and slowly the techniques will build. Like if, like, let's say you're, uh, yeah, like let, let's, let's say that you are interested in using magic for healing. Well, try doing like, try finding like one spell or try finding one, you know, meditation technique and like, just begin with that. And you'll slowly find things that work and don't work about it and then build off of that and like branch from there. And then you'll then branch off of that branch and then slowly you'll start to get kind of a, a nexus, right? Or just dive really deeply into, um, you know, one, one aspect of it. If, if what's calling you is tarot and that's like your big thing, it's like, I, you know, you want to learn how to do tarot, like dive into that and you will find so much information through learning tarot that will bring you over to astrology and then you'll find information there and then that will bring you over to mythology and that will bring you over to the gods and you know there's so there's i think it's it's about fi finding the thing you're passionate about and just like kind of following that and letting that lead you mm, totally yeah and your intuition will kind of tell you where to go next like i got really into dream work and the dream work led me into astrology and that's kind of mm -hmm. where I am right now. But like, yeah, you'll, you'll know the path. And I think that's a really empowering thing about getting into magic, magical things is that um, it's not like you have to like, you know, go to an institution and like learn all of these things. And like, then you get this label. It's, it's literally like everyone has their own very unique path and every path is perfectly valid and perfectly correct. So have fun on that journey yeah, if, if you're absolutely. someone who's getting started with that. <laughs> Yeah, have fun uh, with it. Yeah, that's the most important role. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, where can people go to learn a little bit more about you if they're if they're interested in getting your book or seeing what other stuff you have out there? Sure. So my website is sarahlyons.org. Um, so you can find links to all of my articles and my book and you know different things I've got going on through there. Um, the Social media I'm most active on is Instagram, where I'm at City Mystic. You can find me there. I'm also technically on Twitter, but I'm not 
as much fun as I am on uh, Instagram, but it's um, at underscore Sarah underscore Lions underscore um, on there. And that's kind of it. I, I just got done with my tour for my, my first leg of my tour for my book. And I'm kind of uh, taking some time to see what my next move is going to be. So hopefully doing some events here in New York City, but I might take that show on the road again in the near, near future if there's enough uh, commotion for it. So, yeah. Cool. That's exciting. I'll link all that stuff in the show notes so you guys can check out Sarah and see what she's up to in whatever moment in time you end up listening to this episode. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to be on this podcast. I was so excited to get your reply. Your book was hugely inspirational for me. I just recently launched this podcast well in December. I don't know how recent that is, but it really has shaped a lot of how I've approached the work I'm doing here. And I just, thanks for writing the book as well, I guess. <laughs> Thank you so much. That really means so much to hear. And I'm really happy that it helped you. And yeah, and thank so. you so much for having me on. This has been such a this has been a really awesome conversation. Totally it has. So yeah, thank you. And good luck with your podcast. This is awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been fun so far.